This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The year was 1922. In Moscow, the communists created the Soviet Union. In Rome, the fascists took power. And in New York, on election day, a Lithuanian immigrant named Samuel Dickstein won a seat in the United States Congress. Dickstein was an immigration lawyer on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, home to immigrants from all over Europe, including Russians who had come to America fleeing Lenin and Stalin. Dickstein won election by defeating Meyer London, one of two socialists serving in Congress at the time. Dickstein was a natural New York politician, a showboat, a loudmouth. His constituents liked him, and as chairman of the House Immigration and Naturalization Committee, he helped them with things like securing passports and getting visas. In 1934, Dickstein made a play for the big time by holding headline-grabbing hearings in Congress about Nazi spies and fascist plots against America. He co-founded the Special Committee on Un-American Activities Authorized to Investigate Nazi Propaganda. They wore Hitler's uniforms, but they wrapped themselves in the American flag. This was Madison Square Garden in New York City, and not Berlin nor Nuremberg. As World War II approached, Dickstein's panel went in search of other enemies within, the Japanese and the Russians, too. And after the war, this panel morphed into the House Committee on Un-American Activities. The growing menace of communism arouses the House of Representatives Un-American Activities Committee. Which scoured the nation for Soviet sympathizers. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life an evil and malignant way of life. Dick Stein served in Congress through the end of World War II. After he left office, he became a judge in New York. And when he died in 1954, he was buried with respect and honor. But Samuel Dick Stein had a secret, and it stayed a secret until the end of the 20th century. The congressman was working for the Kremlin, He was a Soviet agent, an agent of influence. I'm Tim Weiner. Welcome to Whirlwind, a podcast about the long history of political warfare between America and Russia. Over the next 10 episodes, we'll look back at the history of political warfare, the espionage, the dirty tricks, the fake news, the disinformation. These are war stories. But instead of soldiers, they're populated by spies and politicians. No missiles or bullets are fired. Instead, this war is fought with secrets, lies, and sabotage.
Four years ago, Russia ran the most successful political warfare operation in history. Vladimir Putin helped put Donald Trump in the White House. Now he's working to re-elect him in November. Multiple sources tell CBS News that intelligence officials warned lawmakers and the White House that Russians are continuing their efforts to interfere in the 2020 election. How did we get here? And what is to be done? To find out, we'll talk to veteran spies and spy catchers, warriors and scholars, and former heads of state. We'll talk to Americans and Russians, reporters and historians. What they tell us about the secrets of the past will raise new questions about the present and maybe reveal some answers. On today's episode, we explore the history of agents of influence. We'll talk about the time long ago when the Russians ran such an agent in Congress. And we'll explore whether they have an agent of influence in the White House today. Samuel Dickstein's secret was locked up in the KGB archives for 60 years until after the fall of the Soviet Union. In the 1990s, a former KGB officer turned journalist named Alexander Vasilyev got into those archives while researching a book about Soviet spies in America. And what he found was a 1938 memo from the Russian intelligence station chief in New York. In that memo, the station chief laid out a vision for a program that would buy the influence of American politicians, senators, and congressmen, and some journalists, too. It was in this memo that Vasilyev saw a reference to Dickstein's unique KGB codename, Crook. This is the only case uh, which I know when the codename was pejorative, Crook. I don't know any other case. So the operatives working with Samuel Dickstein despised him so much for his uh, money grabbing and uh, trying to cheat them that they gave him this uh, codename, Crook. They expressed their feelings, their emotions about this person. And uh, then I asked for his personal file, which I received. So I, I read his personal file. This is how it happened. And what did you think when you discovered that Crook was a long-serving United States congressman? Well, <laughs> you know, in the Soviet Union, especially in the KGB, we had no illusions about the moral code of some American politicians. The Soviets were paying the congressman $25,000 a year, a lot of money in the Great Depression. But Dick Stein had always been greedy. He had started his career in spying by selling U.S. passports to the Russians. Samuel Dickstein and his brother, they had uh, an office. They worked as lawyers. And the first contact with him was established by a Soviet illegal who emigrated from Austria. His uh, codename was Bubi. So Bubi came to their office in New York and asked Samuel Dickstein to help to, to get a, an American passport for money. Uh, Mr. Dickstein said that he settled dozens like Bubi in the United States. This service cost $3,000 per passport. So it was pretty lucrative business. Starting in 1937, 
Dickstein offered even greater opportunities to the Soviets. Samuel Dickstein came to the embassy to talk to Comrade Trainovsky, who was uh, then the Soviet ambassador. Dickstein offered Trainovsky help. And he said to Trainovsky that he came across a group of Russian fascists uh, living in the United States. So he offered Trainovsky to investigate Russian fascists, but he asked money for it. Now, in these years, when Congressman Samuel Dickstein is working for the Kremlin, did he ever have to worry about being caught by the FBI? It didn't seem so. It didn't seem that uh, Dickstein was worried about the FBI, probably because he was uh, occupying such a high-ranking position that he believed that he could control his own, you know, his own destiny. Samuel Dickstein was uh, an agent of influence. Agent of influence is originally a Russian concept. It's in the KGB handbook. What is an agent of influence? Well, agent of influence is is a person who would influence some aspect of uh, the policy of uh, a certain country, in, in our case of the United States, by making speeches in the U.S. Congress, for instance, or in making speeches in some uh, special committee, or writing articles for American newspapers, or speaking on radio or television. Agent of influence is a term of art in American intelligence. It refers specifically to someone in a position of authority who's under the sway of a hostile government, someone who can use their power to influence public opinion and make political decisions that benefit whomever is manipulating them. The Russians invented the concept, but in their eyes, it meant something different. To them, an agent of influence didn't have to be controlled. He just had to be useful. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I remember exactly where I was when I concluded there was an agent of influence in the White House. My wife and I were on a working vacation in the Vermont woods where I was trying to do some writing. I was working on a history of the Pentagon. It would complete a trilogy of books, which grew out of the years that I'd spent as a reporter covering national security for the New York Times. The first one was a history of the CIA, The second, a history of the FBI. A history of the Pentagon would complete the project. The book was, in some ways, the story of my life. In second grade, I did duck and cover drills, cowering under my desk during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when America and Russia were eyeball to eyeball, and no one knew if they'd lived to see the dawn. 
We must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover. That's the first thing to do. Duck and cover. First, you duck. A few years later, I saw the Vietnam War unfolding on my parents' black and white TV. Defense Secretary McNamara said that the military situation had deteriorated. And my first story as a national security reporter was the Iran-Contra fiasco. Oliver North destroyed documents which may have shed light on the Iran arms scandal. I knew this history. I'd lived it. But the Pentagon book was taking forever. I was spinning my wheels. On the morning of July 17, 2018, I got in the car, drove out to the general store, and picked up the New York Times. And right there, on page one, was a story about Trump meeting Putin in Helsinki. Two years had gone by since the FBI started investigating the Russian attack on the 2016 election. Two years' worth of evidence had piled up. But at this press conference in Helsinki, before the eyes of the world, Trump kneeled down before Putin, kissed his ring, said Putin was innocent. I had to see this for myself, so I fired up YouTube, and I watched a reporter pose a question to Trump, and I could not believe the response. Would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? People came to me, Dan Coates came to me, and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin, Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. I will tell you that... I wasn't the only one in shock. Former CIA Director John Brennan just tweeted, and I quote, Donald Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous. James Clapper, former Director of National Intelligence, wondered out loud if the Russians had anything on Trump. Even members of Trump's administration pushed back. Tonight, the president's own intelligence chief, Dan Coach, shot back with a rare rebuke. We have been clear in our assessment of Russian meddling in the 2016 election, and we will continue to provide unvarnished and objective intelligence in support of our national security. Watching that press conference, I felt like I was seeing a giant neon sign blinking. There's an agent of influence in the White House. Ever since then, I've been trying to make sense of that day and its troubling implications. I shelved the Pentagon Project. Instead, I started working on the book I just published, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare. Vladimir Putin joined the KGB in 1975. He claims he resigned in 1991 as the Soviet Union was collapsing. In those years, he became an expert at targeting people, manipulating them, blackmailing them, especially businessmen. They were his specialty. As the ruler of Russia, he began to target nations and their leaders. And there's every reason in the world to think he targeted Donald Trump. How would that have worked exactly? I asked Rolf Mauth Larson. 
He spent years working for the CIA in Moscow and eventually became the station chief. He also hunted for American turncoats, moles, who were spying for Russia from inside the CIA and the FBI. I began by asking Mowat Larson what kind of information a foreign intelligence service would have tried to gather on someone like Donald Trump. Well, all intelligence services, this is no secret, any agents of Russian intelligence during Trump's real estate years or in school or through his amorous relationships or anyone had any information offered it to them, they would continue to collect that and they would file it. And what they're doing is they're looking for these things, vulnerabilities, motivation, access, opportunity to to make an approach. What the name is of the Russian intelligence officer who has Donald Trump's file in his safe in Moscow. That's what I want to know. I want to know who that person is, where he works, how long he's been working on the Trump case. And one of the great mole hunters once told me that you'll find the proof of betrayal in the origins of the deception. It was sort of a brilliant, I think, characterization of what we need to find here. So in that context, we have to find the earliest signs the earliest proof of betrayal, betrayal meaning the origins of, in this particular case, the target's decision to deceive, betray the American interest. To think that they didn't pursue it directly and aggressively would basically go against, fly against all my experience with the Russians. Rolf, let me give you my theory of the case and test it on you. One, Trump has vulnerabilities that Russian intelligence could and would exploit. His transactional sex life, his greed, his corruption, but above all, his ego. Given Trump's towering vanity, if Putin lavishes him with praise and lends him political support, the Russians don't have to slip him secret marching orders. Putin only has to influence Trump and win influence in return. But then I have to ask the obvious question, is that all it is? Is it only because Putin is such a master manipulator and that Trump is so vain that he loves it? Or is there a deeper explanation for this inexplicable behavior? Because I could never have imagined an American president could essentially, whether it's witting or unwitting, betray American interests so thoroughly to the Russians, as has occurred in the last four years. In this sense, in my definition, okay, this is an influence operation. Yes, and I know that in the past, particularly in the Soviet days, there were Americans they considered to be these kinds of agents of influence that the agent of influence himself would never have thought he was uh, being thusly characterized. So there is this, of course, you know, major area that could explain the entire Trump-Putin phenomenon and can. So I, I actually don't disagree with your theory. Uh, I'm, I'm simply um, advocating for a, a more exhaustive determination of whether it's worse than that. I would say the most disturbing thing I've learned about Donald Trump in the last four years, and I didn't know this during the campaign and before the campaign, is the level to which he identifies with Putin. It's not that he's doing his bidding or simply manipulated. 
he's doing it enthusiastically because he's showing indications he buys into his worldview. He loves dictators because he's a wannabe dictator. The White House is on the defense again, this time after President Trump praised Chinese dictator Xi Jinping for seizing power, effectively extending how long he can stay in office forever. I'm not trashing the president. I'm saying this as a CIA officer who's trained to look for this as the most important element of a surefire recruitment case where you can get someone who's on your ideological side. And Donald Trump exhibits a shocking degree of ideological solidarity with Vladimir Putin, doesn't he? So the sway that Putin has over Trump and the idea that Trump, in essence, recruits himself to serve the interests of the Kremlin is a shared identity almost. What's fascinating me is how Putin and his people appeal to Trump and his people by saying, hey, we're just like you. We're white. We're Christians. We love guns. We hate the gays. We are brothers. Is that right? That's true because you have an alignment on on the role of the media or say disparagement of free speech. I mean, that's a Trump characteristic, and, and that's certainly Vladimir Putin's. A, a disrespect for, in, in many cases, other ethnic diversity and, and uh, minorities, of, if not outright racism. You have all these things that Donald Trump stands for that would be things Vladimir Putin would stand for if he was the American president. What's been extremely surprising to me is that that's not called out more in terms of, of understanding the strange hold because it is a strange hold, no matter how you look at it, that Vladimir Putin has over Trump. If you don't understand it is also emanating from Trump, there's something more here than the useful idiot theory or the theory that it's a completely unwitting manipulation by Vladimir Putin and Russian intelligence. I think there's much more to it. As the great French writer Jean Racine said many, many years ago, there are no secrets that time will not reveal. Ah, yes, that's a beautiful quote. I believe that, actually. The truth will come out. If it's true, as Rolf told us, that proof of the betrayal can be found in the origins of the deception, what are the origins of Trump's betrayal? This sure didn't start in Helsinki. So, what was it? Was it money? Isn't it always with Trump? We'll answer these questions in our next segment. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We've been discussing how Donald Trump could be an agent of influence for the Kremlin. Next, we'll follow the money trail. Catherine Belton is an investigative reporter who spent many years in Moscow. She's written about how Putin uses money as a weapon of political warfare to project his power and corrupt Western politics. In her new book, Putin's People, Belton tracks and traces the crooked Kremlin-connected businessmen who started sidling up to Trump 30 years ago. Catherine Belton, welcome to Whirlwind. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to speak with you. Donald Trump visits Moscow in 1987, and there's no way that the KGB doesn't size him up, right? He's a greedy, vainglorious businessman seeking to build a luxury hotel across Red Square from the Kremlin in partnership with the Soviet government. He's discussed his plan for a Trump Tower Moscow with the Soviet ambassador who has invited him over. He has a pronounced taste for beautiful young Slavic women, and he's starting to drop hints about running for president. The Russians take note of all this, don't they? Yes, it seems almost that they made a beeline for him pretty early on. There's an interesting story that's been told by the daughter of the then Soviet ambassador to the US, Yuri Dubin, and she's told the story about how when Dubin first arrived in Manhattan in 86, uh, he took a tour of the city with his daughter and uh, immediately made a beeline for Trump Tower. It was one of the first things that he saw. Uh, he insisted on going inside and meeting Trump personally. <laughs> so he was certainly a person of interest for Soviet intelligence almost as soon uh, as that Soviet ambassador uh, set foot in the US. And, and then he invited him to Moscow in, in 87, where he certainly seemed to be enamored of the capital and the hospitality he received there. And there's one former KGB officer who was a major in the Washington station at the time. He was a guy called Yuri Schwetz, who was in Washington between 85 and 87. He told me that Trump had long been an object of interest for the Soviet KGB. And he said that they believed that they'd recruited Trump when he did visit Moscow uh, that year. And a few weeks after this trip in 1987, Trump suddenly becomes a foreign policy expert. Now, politics, sort of. New York developer Donald Trump caused a stir this morning when he took out an ad in some major newspapers charging American foreign policy lacks backbone. Immediately, the question came up, is he running for something? Trump said today he has, quote, zero political aspirations and is simply a proud American tired of seeing the U.S. getting ripped off, as he put it. He buys full-page ads in the New York Times and the Washington Post calling on the United States to pull out of Asia and the Persian Gulf. It's certainly a pro-Russian move. Is there a ghost of a chance that Russia had in some way recruited or co-opted Donald Trump? 
Well, it certainly sounds like it, um, given what he printed in those open letters and the full-page ads in in the U.S. newspapers. This was almost kind of an answer to all the KGB's dreams. I mean, it may have been that Trump himself is a disruptive character that was convinced that this was in uh, U.S. interest, that the U.S. shouldn't be funding uh, such allies. But essentially, this was a gambit which would unravel uh, the U.S. US's position then as a global superpower. As the Soviet Union crumbles and in the aftermath of the Soviet Empire in the 1990s, the KGB, its veterans, and its people, who include both intelligence veterans and businessmen, are extracting the wealth of the state from oil, from gas, from minerals, from timber. And they're moving it offshore, is that right? Yes, that's right. Basically, the KGB foreign intelligence arm was selecting sort of young students who they could control, who were given access to kind of trading deals. They were given access to um, raw materials, to oil, to metals, and allowed to trade some of this commodity wealth into accounts in the West. And they could do so to make vast profits because under the Soviet command economy, the internal Soviet prices of these commodities was extremely low, sometimes 10 times less or even even less than the world prices. So the, the, the profits were enormous and they were stashed into offshore accounts, uh, some in Switzerland, some in Liechtenstein, others Hong Kong, Singapore. But they were making use of a kind of quite wide network of operatives that they'd been able to recruit. And they they also gave uh, some operatives from the underworld from organized crime access to the similar types of raw materials deals. And we know that the, the KGB was very much in charge of this process because the Soviet trade organizations, which control the ability to buy and sell these materials to export them, were, were basically under the command of the KGB. So you had to be kind of basically under the patronage of the KGB in, in order to get access access to these deals in the first place. And in 1990, a well-connected businessman named Shalva Jarinsky saddles up to Donald Trump at his Taj Mahal casino in Atlantic City. And that is the beginning of something very dark and very big, isn't it? So Shelva Chigorinsky, who was clearly friends with uh, high-ranking members of Soviet and Russian foreign intelligence in the early 80s, and he was one of the first Soviet-born uh, businessmen who was allowed to leave to go into the West. And at around the end of the 80s, he was approached by some operators from Atlantic City um, who ran some casinos there, who'd apparently, in his words, had heard of the myth of the fabled Communist Party wealth, and they thought the casinos in Atlantic City would be a good place to sink some of it. Now, Chigorinsky says that, of course, none of this Communist Party wealth was ever invested in the Atlantic City casinos. He said uh, rather facetiously that the US market was far too transparent to have allowed that. But what he did admit to was that soon after this approach, he was instead introduced to Donald Trump in Atlantic City in the Taj Mahal casino uh, just as it was opening and and so began a, a beautiful friendship. 
relationship between Chigorinsky and Trump and also began the roots of a, a network of Moscow money men uh, who were kind of all sort of in some way or other connected to Chigorinsky and Russian intelligence operatives and other associates of organized crime that have surrounded Trump almost ever since that moment in November 1990 when Chigorinsky and Trump first met. So when this beautiful romance begins 30 years ago between Donald Trump, entrepreneur, and this coterie of Russian businessmen, gangsters, and Kremlin tycoons, Trump is, by his own account, $5 billion in debt. Well, the name Taj Mahal means crown of the palace. Donald Trump's crown is in hock tonight. Trump has been forced to put his Taj Mahal hotel and casino in Atlantic City into bankruptcy because he couldn't pay his debts. By agreeing to put his Taj Mahal How did the Russians help bail him out? So it just so happened that Chigorinsky was friends with some of the U.S. operators who helped put together a deal to bail out Trump at that time. Uh, Bondholders in his Atlantic City casino then agreed to bail him out. They agreed to restructure uh, some of his debt. Now, Chigorinsky says that he had nothing to do with the bailout, that he wasn't kind of part of that deal. But uh, during more relaxed times when I was talking to him at some point he'd kind of refer to the casino operation in in terms of being his or our business which was something he'd back off from uh, when further questioned but it certainly was a curious way to refer to it and then it was also the case that once uh, Trump had reached this restructuring deal the Taj Mahal in particular began being frequented by uh, former Soviet emigres including uh, Russian gangsters who began going there on mass, they really enjoyed the Taj Mahal, and soon it was raking in record-breaking profits, and uh, at the same time failing to report any suspicious transactions. One step beyond. Which raises the next question. Are the Russians laundering money through Trump, through his businesses, his casinos, his real estate properties? Are they, in a sense, investing in Donald Trump? Well, it certainly looks like it to some degree. I mean, obviously, it hasn't been really possible to track. But certainly after 2001, they really ramped up this partnership in which the Trump organization really became a vehicle of choice for uh, funneling illicit cash from Russia into the US. Before 2001, um, it had been relatively easy to funnel dirty cash into the US banking system. But after the September 11th attacks, the US uh, Treasury and, and law enforcement basically really kind of ramped up uh, sort of regulation and oversight of the banking system. There was the US Patriot Act, which made it much more difficult to funnel money uh, through the US banking system. So instead, high-end real estate became a vehicle of choice. And it was just at this time when uh, Trump was approached by a series of, of former Soviet businessmen, many of whom also had links to the same Shelva Chigorinsky, uh, who 
offered him a series of, of lucrative business deals. They offered him projects in which uh, they would build uh, Trump towers worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and Trump would get a slice of profits and management fees and license fees, essentially for doing nothing, just for uh, the businessman, former Soviet businessman, getting the glory of, of building a tower with Trump's name emblazoned on the top. Trump recently completed the world's tallest residential building, a controversial tower looming over the United Nations. They want to get the top apartment. They'll pay much more money for the top apartment. They want the height. They want the view. And there were a series of these deals because he was he was willing to to not really question uh, where their money co was coming from. And indeed, one former Trump organization executive has put it very bluntly. He just said Trump doesn't do due diligence, and in return, uh, he was awarded quite a lot of money. When you say Trump doesn't do due diligence. That means he doesn't really care where the money's coming from. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, because in, in the normal kind of business world, you'd be checking who your business partners are, what their background is, do they have any ties with organized crime? And, and certainly it looks like some of them did. So by now, Putin has consolidated absolute power in Russia, combining the moral codes of the KGB and the business ethics of the mafia. How does he project that power beyond his borders into the West? I think they were always pursuing uh, another aim, and that was that they wanted to regain control of strategic cash flows so that they could begin directing it not just to prop up their own power at home, but also to kind of project it abroad. And of course, once you have supposedly independent tycoons who have to follow Kremlin orders and tycoons who very often have listed their companies on Western stock exchanges, who have vast amounts of money in Western bank accounts and very often uh, funnel that money and, and hide it through uh, webs of complicated offshore companies. You have like this enormous system that's very much deeply embedded within the Western market that's actually quite difficult to trace because even the independent tycoons they're using kind of are very often obscure offshore companies to, to hide their wealth. And once you've kind of established a system like that, it's very, very easy to begin uh, using some of that cash as kind of a kitty to uh, buy off and corrupt uh, Western officials. And now the circle of Kremlin-connected money men and intelligence operatives around Trump is beginning to grow, isn't it? And the Russians keep dangling the promise of an extremely lucrative deal for a Trump Tower Moscow. And one of these Russians is Felix Sater. Felix Sater, a twice-convicted felon, once tied to organized crime and a massive stock scam. Someone Trump now maintains he barely knows. In his who is Felix Sater and who is he to Trump? Yes, that's a good question. So Felix Sater is one of the founders of Bayrock, and this is a real estate venture that in particular began cooperating with Trump soon after the September 11th terrorist attacks. It was a venture that proposed a whole series of very lucrative deals for Trump in the US. Their association in the New York real estate world was pretty well known, and Sater, of course, had printed out all his business 
business cards written with the words advisor to the Trump organization written on them. So it was pretty clear um, how close they were. Sato was actually the person who had very close uh, links with the Russian mob. He was the person who was also, as we've mentioned, who was dangling the prospect of other lucrative deals for Trump to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Trump wouldn't agree to be interviewed by us at all about Sater and instead sent his lawyer who told us about the convicted felon. You can't do background checks on everyone, Revan. Felix Sater is pushing the Trump Moscow Tower. It's now 2015. Trump is a candidate for president. And Felix Sater writes to Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer. November 3rd, 2015, Sater sent an email to Cohen bragging the project would be a boon to then-candidate Donald Trump. Sater writing, quote, Our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will manage this process. He's proposing that Trump gives a $50 million penthouse to Putin in this Trump Tower as a gift. Michael Cohen, Trump lawyer, Trump fixer, is trying to make this happen. And Trump loudly denies that he has any business interests in Russia. None. He's lying. Why? Well, because we already know uh, from his own son's statements that a lot of Russian money has been pouring into Trump properties in the US. It may be true that Trump hasn't actually physically built any towers in Moscow or anywhere else in Russia, but he's certainly still, during the campaign, trying to win a major deal with the help of Felix Sater and Michael Cohen. In intelligence uh, operations, uh, there's something called a dangle. And a dangle can be a person, it can be money, it can be a deal, but it's the bait on the hook that gets the fish. Do you think the Russians were trying to compromise Trump with this Moscow Tower deal? Uh, Putin clearly knows about the project, meaning that he possesses information that he can leak to embarrass Trump during the campaign to show that he's lying about this deal. There were a whole series of, of dangles going on to entice Trump. I think they wanted to keep him coming to Moscow, and that's why they kept offering him deals in Moscow. They were probably keeping an eye on him. But of course, that became ever more of a, a political opportunity the minute he began his run for the presidency. And you only have to look at the language that Felix Sater was using so blatantly in these emails. How on earth does anyone write in an email that we will get Donald elected and sort of announce that the, the Kremlin is, is going to help make this happen and also at the same time offer to give a penthouse to, to Putin in, in this property. I mean, it sort of screams that it's a compromising op operation because there's, I mean, no serious businessman would, would surely ever take this seriously. And here, Felix Sater is, is gaily writing all these emails, which uh, most people in their right minds wouldn't even dream of doing. Do you have a theory of Trump compromat that the Russians have compromising information on him? 
Yes, well, for 30 years, he's been encircled by this network of Moscow money men, by these organized crime associates who certainly know him inside out. They know of his uh, penchant for Slavic Russian women. They know of his haunts in Moscow. They know what he was up to there. And they also know how he's been uh, very often uh, saved and, and bailed out by this network of, of Moscow money men who's helped him basically a stave off bankruptcy on various occasions over the last uh, 20 years or so, if not 30 years. So they certainly know where the, the bodies are buried. So you only have to watch Trump's body language when he's in Putin's presence to see that he is somebody who feels uh, subservient. Trump may not have wittingly become an agent. I'm sure he never signed a piece of paper saying, I will serve the interests of Vladimir Putin or anyone in the Russian state. But certainly he's sort of kind of in some ways uh, deeply indebted and he is uh, deeply involved with them. And we, we've seen this done very, very effectively through uh, Trump, whether he is a signed up agent or not. Coming up, we'll talk about what it means to have an agent of influence in a position of power with someone who knows quite a bit about the topic, a former director of the CIA. For our final interview, we talked to Leon Panetta. He ran the CIA, and after that, the Pentagon. He started by sharing some wisdom he learned from a man who also held both those posts. Robert Gates. I remember uh, Bob Gates uh, once uh, saying that when Bush said he looked into Putin's eyes and saw somebody he could trust, Gates said he looked into Putin's eyes and saw nothing but KGB, KGB, and KGB. And I think Bob Gates has a better handle on Putin than anybody. He is a spy, first and foremost, operates as a KGB agent, and I think used that experience to basically manipulate Trump. I don't think there's any question that Putin looked at Trump and uh, immediately determined that he was a perfect candidate to be manipulated uh, by Putin. He was someone who had a number of uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, he was in trouble financially. Uh, he was vain. Uh, he was a narcissist. Uh, he wanted attention. He had all of the characteristics of somebody who could be basically co-opted to serve the interests of that nation. So what relationship do you think Trump had with Putin and Russia in 2016? There wasn't any question in my mind that uh, Trump and Russia were, quote, working together, unquote, in ways to try to improve Trump's chances of winning. I think the biggest evidence of that is when then-candidate Trump uh, stood up at a press conference and asked the Russians to be able to uh, release material or go after the emails that uh, Hillary Clinton had had. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. When a candidate stands up and asks 
an enemy, an adversary, to uh, participate in our election. I consider that crossing the line, but it also indicated to me that it was obvious uh, that Trump and the Russians uh, had some kind of relationship uh, with regards to that campaign. I, I think time and time again, Helsinki, the conversations he's had with Putin uh, that aren't shared with the American people, uh, and now this refusal to uh, discipline Putin when it comes to bounties on the heads of men and women in uniform. There is no question that Trump is behaving in a way that says very clearly to the American people he has something to hide. The Russians define agent of influence much more broadly than we do. They don't have to control the agent or pay him. It's simply a foreigner doing favors for them. Trump fits that bill, doesn't he? I think having President Trump uh, behave as he does and taking the positions that he does with regards to uh, his unwillingness to confront Russia, his unwillingness to be critical of Russia, that Trump, for all intents and purposes, uh, acts as an agent of influence of Russia. What do you think accounts for the sway that Putin has over Trump? Do you think it's money? Do you think it's compromat, the uh, compromising information? What, what's your theory of the case? Uh, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And obviously, someday, I think we'll find out whether it comes out with his tax returns uh, or whether it comes out in other ways. But uh, there's not much question here. I mean, I, you know, one thing about President Trump is he's very transparent uh, in his behavior. And he's transparent uh, when it comes to protecting his friends and those who have done something to help him. Uh, we've seen that with his pardons of his friends. We've seen that in his his effort to try to influence uh, what the court does with regards to uh, those who helped him. And I, I don't think there's much question that he is basically operating in a way that makes very clear that the Russians have in some way uh, helped him. At Helsinki, after Trump openly sided with Putin by refusing to believe that the Russians attacked our election, Putin told the world, and I'm quoting, as to who is to be believed and who's not to be believed, you can trust no one. Translation, there are no facts. There is no truth. And Trump lives by that doctrine. Can American democracy survive if there is no truth to be believed? Well, the whole purpose of intelligence, the reason we have a CIA, the reason we have our other intelligence agencies, is to present truth to power, truth to power, to be able to make uh, the president of the United States and the other leaders of our country aware of what our adversaries are up to and what they are doing that threatens our democracy. If there is an unwillingness, to listen to that truth, if there's an unwillingness to pay attention to the threats against our democracy, then there is no question in my mind that that behavior represents a threat to our democracy itself.
William Faulkner once wrote, The past is never dead. It's not even past. Today, if you go down to the Lower East Side of Manhattan and stand on the corner of Pitt and Grand, you're standing in Samuel Dickstein Plaza. It was dedicated in 1963. A city block named after this congressman who used his power to spy against the United States. But nobody knew that secret. It took time before the story of Crook emerged from the KGB archives. Sixty years, in fact. And it makes you wonder, will we ever know the truth about the man in the White House? And know what the Russians have on him? It's a mystery that never has been fully investigated. Not by the FBI, not by the CIA, not by Robert Mueller, and not by Congress. The answer requires a full-fledged, no-holds-barred counterintelligence investigation. A mole hunt. Those investigations can go on for years, for decades. The danger is that you tear your house apart looking for the mole. But you have to do it. That's what history tells us. On the next episode of Whirlwind, we're going to look at that history. What happened when the CIA went looking for a murderous Russian mole within its own ranks? It's an amazing story. Join us. Whirlwind is presented by Cadence 13, Jigsaw Productions, and Prologue Projects. The show is written by me, Tim Weiner, and produced by Noel Mosban, Andrew Parsons, and Leon Nefa, with editorial support from Madison White. The story is based on my book, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare. Whirlwind is executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Alex Gibney, Stephen Fisher, Stacey Offman, Richard Perello, Joey Mara, and John Schmidt. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.